All right, what's up, everyone? Welcome to the Room 413 podcast. Uh, we're back at you with uh, another podcast. We know it's been a hot minute, so we apologize, but we have video now, so this is going to be as awkward for you as it is for us the first time <laughs> doing this. So um, we have quite a few things to talk to you about today, but before we get started, my name is Sam Spicer, a.k.a. Henry Pinto. And I am Gilson Carner, a.k.a. the mysterious Phil Franklin. <laughs> All right, and we are part of the L.A. Boys, as always, and uh, let's get right into it. So, first of all, we apologize for being so late at getting these videos out. It's been uh, as much of a pain for us as it has for you, but finding the time to do this while being full-time college students uh, can be quite difficult. And we also just got back from winter break, so... Um, it's been sort of a struggle, but for we're here yeah. now, and uh, we're going to try to release as frequently as we can. Um, so we want to start this video by jumping into our current events, and while some of this stuff has happened a little bit in the past, we think it's still worth mentioning. And the big thing that we want to bring up is that for everyone watching here in America, the government shutdown has officially ended, but... Tentatively. Yes. Um, the government shutdown was 35 days long, which I'm not sure if it beat our national record, but unfortunately the government's only going to be open for three weeks. Donald Trump agreed to reopen the government on a temporary basis on the assumption, on the condition that Congress would get eventually give them the money for the wall. And if they do not, the government will go back into shutdown in three weeks and he threatened to call a national emergency which would get his wall made circumventing Congress. Yes. Um, so that's like your little news update. If any of you like watch the news, I'm sure you already knew that, but um, that was one of the things we wanted to cover. The other thing is Winter Storm Harper. So as most people in the Midwest and on the East Coast know, this storm hit hard. And when I mean it hit hard, I mean it hit hard. They had 12 to 15 inches of snow in St. Louis, which is where I'm from. Um, and then a couple days later, it hit the East Coast, thankfully, after I had got back to school, so I didn't have to deal with it, but I got out just before the storm, and I think they had the same amount, if not more, I think, than the Midwest, but anyway, that's the biggest storm that's come through the United States in a couple of winters, so that was a big deal for us, and there's another one, actually, on the horizon, I was looking at it. Yeah, what's Earlier the name today, of that one? Um, I can look it up right now, but I know that it's, it's, it's not supposed to be as much in the Midwest, it's more like North like the northern plains and then into the east coast. Where is it? Hurricane Irene, Hurricane Isabel. I'll look at this and see if I can. Winter Storm Jaden, that's what it's called. Ah, it's yeah. coming in. So we're not affected by it here, and most of the people that got it in the Midwest last week um, aren't affected by it, so that's not a big deal. Yeah. But uh, if you are at risk of this upcoming storm, best of luck to you, and please be safe. <laughs> Go get your bread and water. Yeah. Um. But yeah, so school's back in session for us. This is a uh, first week just behind us, so syllabus week, all that good stuff, just reading through a bunch of stuff. Yeah, we know that many of you already attended school up to three weeks ago, and we hope that your semester has been going well. But one thing that I would like to bring to light is just take good care of yourself, because it's only been the first week here yeah. at campus for us, and we've already seen a lot of students go through difficult times. They get too stressed out by being back at school after being home for so long or they just get caught up in all the work and it can be really detrimental to your health or might lead you to make spontaneous changes so just make sure you do a good amount of self-maintenance and self-reflection and to go along with the semester with a smile yeah exactly just hang in there like everyone's struggling uh especially if you're a freshman 
um, like you get past that first semester and it's kind of like, oh, wow, this is real now. Um, I mean, at least that's how I felt last year. Yeah. But like now that we're into it, like you get into a, a mood and it's like, like your home, like school becomes home. Uh, you just got to be with the right people and the right mindset. So just hang in there and promise that it gets better because it definitely does. Um, last on the current events, uh, as everyone knows, the Oscars are coming up soon. February 24th. And there are a lot of huge, huge movies that are set to receive some awards that are nominated at least. Um, the few notables that we had were Black Panther, A Star is Born, A Green Book, and Vice. And a personal favorite, If Beale Street Could Talk. Yes. Uh, Black Panther's actually nominated as a drama, correct? The f- yes, the first time a super... A, superhero? Yeah, superhero movie. It's actually a recognized superhero movie is, is going, going to be... Is going a drama? Yes. So it's the first one I've ever seen in the Oscars, too, almost. Uh-huh. Uh, a Star is Born, of course, is the movie with Lady Gaga and Brad Pitt, I think. Correct. And um, I don't know the story exactly, but I know that it's a remake of a movie from the 80s, I think, or the 90s. I can't remember for sure. Green Book is a personal favorite of mine. I saw that over winter break. Incredible movie. Um, uh, I can't remember his name off the top of my head. The main actor in that movie is going places. He's been in some awesome movies, notably Moonlight, which won uh, Best Picture a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a great movie. And Vice, of course, is the Dick Cheney story. Um, I've yet to see it myself, but I've heard great things. So I'm expecting a good Oscars this year, actually, for the first time in a while. So this will be interesting. Yeah, so for all you movie buffs or everyone just likes a good drama story, you know, February 24th, make the best of it. And moving on to the big topic of this podcast, we want to focus on something that both of us as landscape architects really have a passionate interest in, something that we call the City Beautiful Movement. Um, Sam, do you want to tell me a little bit about it? Yeah, so the City Beautiful movement it was an American urban planning movement led by architects, landscape architects, and reformers uh, that really sort of like came to light in the late 1800s into the early 1900s. We're talking like 1890 to like 1920. Um, and it really, really sort of encapsulated the idea of like this revitalization of cities and sort of bringing people to really appreciate where they live. Um, most notably... We're talking about urban planning done by uh, Daniel Burnham, um, landscape architecture done by the father of landscape architecture, Frederick, Frederick Longstead, um, who is a pretty big favorite of most people in our major and profession. Um, and really, the whole thing was that this movement sort of gained ground uh, during the 1890s at the World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago, where uh, the architect Daniel H. Burnham uh, led the construction of the fair um, and sort of like you know, he drew up all the plans. He was sort of the general contractor for the whole thing and just led the movement. And he asked Olmsted to do most of the work. Because at this point, I think Olmsted had done some work in Boston. I think he had finished the Emerald Necklace. I think he had done work in uh, New York with Central Park. So at this point, like, he's really well known for, like, his work. Um, so Burnham brought him in to work on that project. And that's where you get uh, the White City, which is what, if most people are familiar with the 1893 World's Fair, it was in Jackson Park. Yes. In Chicago, um, which still exists today, actually, and one of the buildings from the fair is the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago. That is the only remaining the only standing building. Yeah, there. the only existing building yeah. from the Columbian Exposition. Uh, that's an awesome place to go, and the if park still stands. So um, you can definitely check that out. But so we're talking about this idea of like a semi-utopia, 
in which, you know, visitors to the fair were supposed to be shielded from poverty and, like, crime, and the whole thing was, like, you're stepping into this neoclassical um, world, essentially. Yeah, one thing that is, you can, if you research this, one thing you can kind of find is that cities, while impressive and incredible to look at, were not always the cleanest, or they were always crowded, and these are like the biggest cities, like obviously Chicago, New York are prime examples, but they just weren't that great to look at. And so to help with the mass amount of immigration, to help with the city's value, so to speak, and to help with the help and everything that went along with it, they started to just make them beautiful or try to find a way to make them less filthy, whether that meant just sanitation or whether that meant bringing in nature. And in this case with, um, Chicago, with Chicago, with the World's Fair, Chicago, the area that they built this in was mostly swampland. It was marshes. Yeah. It was not really good for the city. didn't make it look good. The smells were horrible. And while it was natural and that should be appreciated, it just really, it didn't help the city at all. And so with the City Beautiful Movement, they, re they replaced all the marshes and swamps with nice parks, you know, ponds, lakes, like all kinds of stuff. They did both an urban renewal and in a sense, ecological renewal that really helped the city. And that's kind of what this whole movement is about. Well, plus, when you talk about a World's Fair, I mean, World's Fairs always bring in, you know, people that wouldn't normally be at your city. Yeah. So the fact that it was this movement on top of just bringing in so many people from, like, just international people to visit, this is the thing I wish we still did, because expositions and World's Fairs at the time, when they were, like, in their prime, were awesome. Like... They were the ability for a city to host an event. They're like a modern-day Olympics, right? Yeah. But, like, with more. Like, it wasn't just sports. It was, it was like, a whole thing. It wasn't they, something you needed to be, like, the best of the best like to go for. Everyone could yeah, have gone. It was, like, a city's opportunity to, to, like, display what that city was capable of and what they prided themselves in. Like, there was a huge, like, livestock thing at the 1893 World's Fair because Chicago's main industry at the time was this livestock and like yes. tons of like they had this one building and this is all of this that, uh, knowledge of mine at least that I've gotten is from personal research and a book that I read by Eric Larson known as Devil in the, the White, White City, City which is incredible and it goes in depth with all of this stuff um, so I highly recommend that book but there was a building that was the size of like a modern day arena and the inside of it was this like model mm -hmm. of like european cities yeah so they made like sets for european cities and they had like vendors that sold things so it was like you walked into this arena and you could go to like germany and go to like italy and like and every like all of the architecture were like these full-size building models like broadway quality sets and they had like vendors and so it was like you were actually there and this is in like the 1800s like we're talking like yeah, this post-industrial revolution like we're not even in the 19th century and you're sitting here with we didn't, this kind we of didn't know what the future was going to bring but we knew that we wanted our cities awesome. to be the best that they could be and to show the world what each sit what these cities could can be. you imagine if we still did that kind of thing it would be insane especially with modern technology well, we're not sure what you guys are planning or what what you want to do with the future but this is something that we want to help contribute as architects and to do and to show you we want to like just talk about some aspects of it aside from say the world's fair and stuff like that stuff that's going on right now in cities and towns all over america and the world and we're going to start off by talking about street trees um this is a personal favorite of mine um and a youtuber that me and gibson both watch uh i actually introduced you to him recently uh, his his youtube funnily enough is called city beautiful 
and he talks about all kinds of initiatives and movements and things that cities are doing. An analysis um, of what these cities are doing, whether they're, yeah, yeah. how effective they're analysis. being. But he is a uh, urban designer and planner, so he has a degree in what he talks about, and he talks about you know all kinds of different things. But recently, he did an episode on street trees, and um, it's a personal favorite of mine. The street trees are what you see in any city when you're either driving around or walking, um, and you're on like a main avenue or Broadway, and there's these huge mature trees that are making this sort of canopy of with over the street that you're on, notably in Fort Collins um, Mountain Avenue, which has a trolley that runs through it uh, during the summer months, um, is a perfect example of what street trees really were back in the day when they actually started really initiating street trees. Um, and they're just now starting to sort of make a comeback because we're seeing cities really take initiative and say, you know, hey, we want more mature trees on our streets because, you know, it improves property value. Um, I mean, like, oxygen levels yeah and and they also mentioned this in the video on the channel but street trees they would do work to increase property values of lower of lower income families their houses would be worth so much more they improved air quality they also controlled weather in areas that were either incredible that were usually incredibly sunny because the shade that came from the shade that came from the trees cooled streets down and that in turn contributed to less money being spent on air conditioning. Yeah, this is a and once one final note, cooling. They um one one added benefit that comes of having mature trees along street sides is that they can also work to prevent ve accidental vehicular accidents. Some cities would actually put trees right in the middle in very small islands in the in the center of street so that way if a car it deters were, people from speeding yeah so they would have to slow down or if someone were out of control driving you know they wouldn't have to worry about they wouldn't have to worry so much about accidentally hitting houses or something the trees would absorb most of it most notably example would probably be like the edges of central park in new york because everyone's familiar with that if you look at the avenues that are on all four sides of central park you have these streets that have these huge mature trees growing off of them um, and those are all sort of along the lines of street trees in their prime. They, they, they were planted um, to, to do all of the things we've just covered. And so like, if you're ever looking for an example, like look at any modern avenue in a street and you usually see a mix of these huge mature trees versus like some smaller ones. They have to mix yeah. them. It's, kinda, it's, like a natural it's like a natural border to um, both help the park and keep, you know, all in a poetic sense, to keep the big city and the risks of it from coming into the park, in a poetic sense. Yeah. Um, honestly, like, I just think street trees are really awesome because you can do pretty much anything with them, and it's not hard to plant a tree. And once it, like, takes root and gets big, I mean, like, you have these avenues that are just absolutely stunning with these trees. And can you, like, imagine, like, these open cities with no trees, like, no modern trees, no, like, mature trees, and it would just be like this barren, like, think of L.A. Like, L.A. has trees, but, like, most of that They're city... They're choked trees. Yeah, that and most of that city is so developed that, like, you can't even see any green. You look on Google Maps, and it's just, like, this huge gray mass of, like, overexpansion and, like, urbanism. And it's, like, it's choking out that entire city because yeah. there's, like, no na nature at all. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, even if you have, like, just standard trees you get in any nursery, you know, they're not really growing that much. But if cities really did work to have street trees growing along their along their roads and the high not highways, roads and avenues, you know, just think about what if you do live in a city, think about what your commute could be like 
instead of, you know, just seeing, you know, gray, 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 that you're seeing, you know, green everywhere you look. I think it would definitely help. I think it would definitely contribute to people's mornings. Yeah. So how do you feel about, like, green roofs and, like, the Green Roof Initiative? I always, I love them. I like when people, like, I especially like it in communities, residential ones, not just skyscrapers. So when people actually take efforts to have vegetation growing on them, whether it's a garden, whether it's just shrubbery or grass from, you know, the smallest villages in Iceland to the biggest residential areas outside of Manhattan. I always find it interesting when people, individual people, take efforts for it. Yeah. Yeah, so, like, the Green Roof Initiative, to me, is, like, really interesting. You're seeing cities such as, like, Chicago, New York, and Denver, and they're really, what they're doing now is that they're they're actually implementing, like, zoning requirements. Yeah. So, like, any new construction that is, like, such and such size yeah. has to be a green roof. Yeah, any building. It has to be some sort of sustainable green roof because cities are really trying to, like, um rid the population like of the buildings and the density of like buildings that have like tar roofs yeah because they still like made like up until recently like buildings were made where like the roofs were flat and they used tar to sort of keep it all together and now these these cities are taking initiative and they're saying you know any new buildings constructed need to have this much green space per capita and it's like to me it's really awesome i think it's something that um really really needs to happen uh, it shows it shows that cities are taking an initiative and while while those actions may not be considered big city beautiful movements it at least shows that they're trying to make an effort because any buildings that are now being constructed above a certain height and cover a certain amount of surface area on the roof they're mandating that some level of gardening take place and again I feel like the benefit, it benefits everyone in the city. It benefits the people if they just want to go up there and see like vegetation. I believe there's, there are statistics that showing that green roofs in both big and small buildings do contribute to less costs in air, in air conditioning. Not quite sure on that statistic, but I definitely know there is a correlation there. Well, like look at this building, for example. This is something, I'll probably flash this on the screen so you guys can see this. They're, they're getting these, like, rooftop gardens now, where, like, people are literally up there, like, planting community gardens and, like... Growing small vegetables, yeah, like growing one. flowers. This is in the middle of, like, some Asian country. We apologize, but we, we don't know what country <laughs> that's in. It says Tongshan County. I don't know where that is, but... But yeah, like, we will show. We'll try huge, to show you the photo. It's a huge community garden. Like it's just like these but yeah, people. yeah, we have are, rice like, growing on the top. We have flowers. We have shrubbery. We have. Well, yeah, grasses. and that's just the people are like doing that kind of stuff now. Like that's, it's not unheard that's a of. Pers- that's a personal have. choice, and that's a great thing to see in communities. You know, people, exactly. That's, that's, that's people the whole thing. This initiative. For it. This whole initiative, like, really just provides uh, people the ability to do that, and it's like, it makes so much sense. You have these people living in this building you know, who probably want to grow their own stuff because they're in a city and it's hard to grow anything in a city because yeah. garden space and just open space in general, it comes at, at a very, is at a premium. Yes. So like, it just makes sense. You take this whole building and you put a garden on the top and you say, all right, everyone who's a tenant in this building has a spot on this garden that they can grow whatever they want. Yeah. It um, becomes like this networking system where people can just Yeah, people trade. want to contribute to contribute mutually you know, for like, it, especially in like apartment buildings. You want an apple, I'll trade you for like whatever else. It becomes I'll trade like you an very, apple for a carrot. You know, yeah, if you, it you have any seeds like, for this, can we grow that? Farmer's market type feel. And yeah. It's like so easy to do that. 
Um, one thing I just want to say, if you are looking to have a rooftop garden or make a pitch about a rooftop garden or green roofs or whatever, know that these things, they can get kind of heavy. The amount of soil and plants yeah. up there, you have it to, is heavy, so don't, have to be able to support it. so don't rush into it lightly. Make sure you do the research, but if you do, don't just if you do look it up, if you do do your research, you'll know what benefit these can have. And if you do have the chance, we highly recommend that you could, if you take the time to install one. Um, the, and there's different types of green roofs too. There's like ones that are made specifically to sort of preserve a certain um, environment. There's ones that are supposed to be used as a, to support a certain initiative. So they're just so flexible. And to me, like. A green roof's like the easiest way to cut down on like pollution and the lack of urban green space. Yeah. Because you're already building this building. So like why what what makes it any difficult more difficult to make something like that, like a green roof? It just yeah. it makes sense to me. Also, s small last thing. If you do have a if you do live in the city and say your more buildings have green roofs, think of it this way. All the pigeons that attack your car or just <laughs> are right near your car, they're going to be up there with you know right up there on the top of your building with vegetation plants instead of being right in the parking lot right next to the car you just had detailed just something small <laughs> if you want to think about it like that but aside, aside from green roofs buildings also buildings also take other good initiatives to try maybe not to look or help the environment to help the environment but more to make sure they don't hurt it anymore or to limit any harm they could have on the buildings. It's usually new construction. Yeah. We're talking about lead. Yeah, which is leads lead is L E E D stands for leadership in energy and environmental design, which is something that we as landscape architects, while we might not necessarily have any say in it, we strongly sorry, we applaud their efforts to make buildings yeah. like this. So essentially what lead is is this organization and sort of I guess what would you call it? like a a government body in a way it's not government yeah. run but it like it governs construction of buildings and essentially think of it as like an oscar or an olympic medal for a building so like there's bronze silver gold and platinum certifications that lead hands out um and essentially what they are is there these awards that are they take into account the sustainable qualities that a building has and they total them, and then based on the score that that building receives, that's the level of certification they get. Actually, on campus here at Colorado, Colorado State, State, quite a few of our buildings are LEED certified. I think the Student Center is LEED Silver certified. Um, the Behavioral Sciences Building, I think, is LEED Gold certified. The and Stadium, I think, is LEED certified. Yeah, and the Durrell Dining Center, I believe, is LEED silver. Gold, too. I think. Is it gold? I think it's gold. I don't yeah. think we have any platinum certifications on campus. Which is the highest yeah. level you can get. But we do have a good handful of LEED certified buildings on campus, which is awesome to me. And yeah. You, it's really cool, too. When you look at we have this place called um, the Pavilion, which is in between two of the dorms on campus here. It has a bike shop in it. It has this huge wall that is made entirely out of potted plants. On the interior. On the interior that the staircase wraps around. And there's and on the back side there's grass and seating areas that and the grass will actually go up down. a slope up to the yeah. second level of the pavilion. There's solar panels and that's all that that's everything that lead entails, because lead buildings are specifically designed to just they save energy, they save water, resources, they generate less weight, they support human health, they facilitate 
they're just a good thing to have in your community. And knowing that those are around really just help the environment. And in lots of cases, weed, weed buildings do help make the city beautiful, but not necessarily because they have vegetation, but because when you're designing a building like this, it can't just be, you know, just a regular building. It can't just be like a rectangle. You know, they're really innovative. They're new designs. They're solar panels. They're trying everything they can to be so environmentally conscious that they don't fit into the box that standard buildings would. They like to do different things. So I always feel like it did help the city look beautiful just from an architectural standpoint. Yeah, because most of these buildings are modern construction because they have to be able to yeah. um, sort of support the infrastructure of these buildings. Um, and so you're seeing a lot now. Like I guarantee you if any of you go into your, your local city, regardless of where you live, and you walk around, and you go into like sort of a newer building um, that's like either government run or owned or is like a private corporation, I guarantee you, you'll find at least one building in your city that is LEED certified. The Their certifications, I mean, they, they're it's international, rigorous. they're rigorous. Um, you can't you can fake these. I mean, You can't they, just build something and get certified. Like, you have to, there's a strict list of things that you got to go through, It's which is insane to me. This is such an organization that sort of uh, incentivizes, you know, urban sustainability, which is, to me is like one of the biggest things to combat. Uh, like whether it be global warming or just um, like the, warming, the lack of bio, biodiversity in cities, yeah. just heat in cities, any problems that a city could face aside. It reminds from, me a lot yeah. of like uh, interstate construction now, where they're trying to do those like uh, like wilderness overpasses. Uh, yeah, where they're building those bridges for like actual like nature to cross. Not yeah, so much they want to make. Yeah, they're not so much worried about. They want to limit the human disruptions having the environment and making sure that nature can coexist with what's it. cool about those actually is that it kind of encompasses like all of the ideas we've talked about so far and that it's it's um it fits into the city beautiful movement it encompasses street trees um i mean the whole thing itself is a green roof over the highway essentially. yeah basically it's a bridge and i mean like they could easily be certified by lead if they were buildings themselves so mm -hmm. they they really sort of those this is a newer thing too we'll probably we'll put a picture of it on yeah, we'll make screen. sure to like we'll find some show you see some what we're talking about if you don't know what we're talking about. But there, there are these huge bridges that span interstates um, that allow uh, wilderness and wildlife to cross safely. Um, which insert what what the really big thing about that is that it cuts down and um, sort of prevents um, uh, wildlife splicing. Yes. Yes. So like it really prevents these like huge, huge like watersheds and like in, uh, ecosystems from being cut by something man-made. Yeah, to be unnaturally because cut because that affects everything. Population, it affects, you know, hunt. Migration it, patterns, yeah. like like uh, everything. Feeding, it affects if you, nothing, no human action when it comes to, per, comes to closed environments like that is minute. Anything you do like that can be, you take a 50, have a substantial you take a 50 acre site and you run a highway down the middle of it, and you're going to disturb pretty much any process that's nature yeah. in that 50-acre site. And because then you're taking that 50-acre site, and you're cutting it down to a 25-acre site. And like that two 25 affects acre everything. And, and that I, affects, I mean, that affects population density, that affects, like, predator-prey relationships. Like, the simplest thing, like, just even a dirt road through a site like that affects that. So, 
the fact that these bridges are now coming in where and you know the argument that people make is like well how do the animals know to cross there and it's an like, animal well, knows they think i mean think about it if you're a deer and i mean i can't really speak about it because i'm not an animal but like if i was a deer and i was just walking around and I was looking for somewhere to cross the highway. You go right towards the speeding cars and bright lights over there. Right. Or you go or for the you nice, go to the nice peaceful, you know, the nature safe, you know, I mean, the like, safer bridge over there. They have they have brains too. I mean, like they may not be as big as ours, and they might not be as smart as humans are, but they have the natural instinct enough. They least. have a, they have the natural instinct to avoid getting hit by anything. I mean, think about it. Even when you're driving down the road and you come across a deer, like they aren't just like nonchalantly like sauntering across the highway. Like they're, they're, they're bounding, ba- they're bounding. They're like jumping across the thing. They're trying to get as across as fast as possible because they're trying to get the safest way across. So like you build these things that really incentivize, and then over time, as these populations start to utilize that bridge, it just becomes instinct. Yeah, that that's where it's safe to cross. I think about it. animals have these conversations. Like they, you've seen movies like Brother Bear, and you know that's a very humanized version of. You know, yes. nature's instincts. But even in that movie, they really, like, sort of demonstrate the thought processes of animals. And they talk about, like, what's safe and what's not. Hmm. And then even in, like, The Lion King with the meerkats. Yeah. Like, they keep... Meerkats they, have people. They like, know. They, they, like, have other meerkats stand outside of their burrows looking for harm to yeah. alert every... Like, they're smart. Like, these animals know. So you put these bridges in, and then over time animals figure out that that's the safest place to cross, and that just becomes second yeah. nature to them. And that's then, just where they cross. Pre- and then pretty soon, it's we're all pretty soon they're living more harmoniously or less disruptive. And in case it's not blatantly obvious from everything you've just heard and seen, we really care about this, not just as landscape architects, but just seeing, the, seeing initiatives like this happening in cities where they're trying to be more harmonious with an environment or trying to bring the environment back. It's really just something that we care so much about and when we see big parks being installed in cities that do so much they either bring the environment back or they fix big mistakes it's it really just makes us feel better because one of my favorite parks and i've never had the pleasure of being there but i've done reports i've seen photos is the gasworks park in seattle now this area was it was a complete wreck there were industrial plants there chemical plants there and well yeah we will show photos with this but the area was the the sites closed down all the factories closed down but this area it was toxic nothing could grow there nothing could really live there and eventually this architect named robert i've heard pronounced both ways hag and haig uh he decided to create a new park there and he did he spent over a decade trying to figure out a way to cover the toxins that are there or remove as many as he could and do whatever and he covered it with gra- covered it was rolling hills of grass and even left parts of the park yeah sorry the original right here. yeah the original plants there as a moment as a monument to it but this park changed so much about the area because now there was not there wasn't this big blemish on seattle now you had this roll these rolling green hills and, and you sort of have like this lasting landmark that represents you know a, a pet like some of the past of seattle yeah so when so cities when cities do this when they actually realize you know the black marks they can weave on the area around them even if they even if they really didn't care about the environment and only cared about their cities which i'm not saying they do doing stuff like this just helps and it's always 
And when I look at this, it's always an inspiring sight for me. But uh, this isn't the only park that really shows this. Yeah, so another one that's a big favorite of mine um, is called the High Line. And this is in uh, New York City. Essentially what they did is they took this huge, um, like, above-ground rail line. It was like a subway line, but it was like elevated rail, like similar to what you find in Chicago with like yeah. the loop. Yeah, with downtown. the L train. You, so essentially they converted this entire track section from like some block in the city to some other block in the city into a park space and they actually added to it. So it's not just, you know, like old train tracks with like a sidewalk running through it. Um, they have like these other pieces that they built to it. Um, one of the streets has this outlook that they built underneath yeah, yeah. the rails and it's like an outlook and it sits out over the street and you look out of the glass and you're looking straight down the avenue, but you're like floating above it because these train tracks are going above it. Um, so they just really, they really paid close attention to the design. Um, and I can't remember which firm it was that did the Highline. I want to say it was Michael Van Valkenburg, but I don't that think... That sounds like him. But he's I don't, another... I don't think that's right. He's another favorite. He's another big... He's another big name in landscape architecture. But yeah, this this park, ah. it took them years to do, but what it did what it did to the area around it was just it's real it's really indescribable how much benefit it did to the city. And they did this in phases too. So they did the first section opened in two thousand nine, the second section opened in two thousand eleven, the third section opened in twenty fourteen. And the and last part this, this place called the Spur, which is sort of smaller. And it kind of comes off of that. We'll put this picture up. I can find it. We'll put this picture up. It has the spur coming off. That's opening actually this year. Um, so let's see. Who does... Uh, I think it was... I saw James Corner, which would make sense. That's... Yeah. So uh, James Corner Field Operations was and the landscape architecture firm on it. So it was James Corner. But this is, a, is an incredible park. Um, we're talking like... This is basically like a big green roof. It's huge. Like this is a green roof that's built on train tracks that spans. Oh, I don't want. It spans about a mile and a half. We're talking all through New York. One, two, and three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, twenty-one, twenty to twenty-one blocks of the city is this, now covered by this, and it's in the. Uh, it's on the west side. Um, so, so for anyone watching New York or in the New York area, definitely take some time to go check this place out. It's awesome. It's really cool. So uh, we'll definitely have to put some pictures up. But um, essentially with this, they were like, well, we have this huge rail line and we could get rid of it like we have with all the other ones. Or we could, you know, figure out a way to revitalize it. And they, they decided that they were just going to put a park on it. And obviously, you know, it took phases to get it done. But there's some really cool products that come from this and it would be so easy for cities to do this i know even in st louis we have uh old rail lines that come in that they weren't necessarily passenger rail or anything but they, they've turned them into parks um slowly it's, it's an easy way to just take it's an easy way to renewal the urban area and to take something that was something that was dilapidated old couldn't be used and in some cases ugly and make it brand and make it brand new and it's Something that we just really care about because, I mean, I, like, I love the cities and seeing this kind of stuff happening inside it where it's not just, as I like to term them, concrete caskets. <laughs> when they're not like that and you see, like, vegetation growing and you see kids, you know, kids playing in tall grass or kids picking flowers or you see bees that are over there instead of, like, hives and basketball and basketball hoops or 
just in the ground and you see butterflies over there it just it does something that does something that real you will understand it if you didn't grow up with it yeah so um that pretty much covers like the parks that we had as in mind for like examples and there are there are dozens oh, yeah. more so just if you're up, really interested just up, like just city beautiful or like um like just, urban renewal revitalization you can find so many things i'm probably going to link in the description um uh for those of you that are watching on youtube uh the city beautiful youtube page and definitely check it out um subscribe if you want i mean this guy's doing some awesome stuff i'm glad i found him uh probably cover some of his stuff in like a later podcast maybe um but yeah so this has been sort of more of like an informative podcast it hasn't really been so discussion it's not been so. really controversial we just wanted to tell you something that this drives not this drives our careers and something that we just care about in and of itself and whether or not you knew any about any of this, we hope that you know you'll recognize this kind of stuff or learn to appreciate nature wherever you are. And if you're in positions, maybe maybe just pitch initiatives on how to bring nature back, even if it's just new flower, even if it's just new flowers in areas of your work or new flowers in your community or stuff like that. Nothing, no small, no action is too small when it comes to things like this. And I guess if there is if there is an underlying message, that's something that we would like you to understand. So, um, as always, I mean, like, comment, subscribe, listen to our other episodes. We have two other episodes that we recorded uh, last year um, on YouTube, Spotify, or not Spotify yet. I'm no, not yet. We're, actually, we're working, we're working there. on Spotify, but on iTunes and SoundCloud, um, you can download any of those and listen to them anytime. Um, and if you have any idea, if you have any topics or something you like us to mention or bring up you know let us know in the comments and we'll try to get to it as best as we can and we will try to be better about getting the episodes yeah, out on a, on a really more regular basis waiting so long to release this but we've just been really busy so yeah as i think many of you can attest as well yeah but um in terms of this video format um this is new to us i mean this is the first time we've really recorded ourselves so there's definitely things we can improve on so um those of you that are watching the video aren't listening i mean even those that you are that are listening uh, I, I ask you to check out the video and let us know how we did. Um, any improvements we can make, let us know. Like the more feedback we get, the better the podcast we can turn out. Um, and to me, that's that's the main thing. I mean, this yep. is about building a community, sort of just like having discussions. And if there's people that are interested on in being in our podcast, um, we're always looking can, for guest stars. You can contact us at room four thirteen podcast at gmail .com. That's our email, or you can message us on um, the our social media platforms. Like we've got an Instagram. Um, we got Facebook and, uh, so just hit us up and let us know. Um, but until next time, um, I'm your host, Sam Spicer, AKA Henry Pintail. And I am once again, the mysterious Will Franklin, or as you may know me, Gibson Carner. We have the LA boys and this has been the Room 413 podcast. Thank you.